Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Zach Mainen. Dr. Mainen is a neuroscientist and the director of the Champalimau Neuroscience Program at the Center of the Unknown in Lisbon, Portugal. His lab studies the neuroscience of decision-making, neuromodulation, and behavior using a combination of experimental and computational approaches, and I was able to sit down with Dr. Mainen at his lab during a recent trip I made to Lisbon, Portugal, and we talked about a variety of topics, including what kinds of things animal brains are actually computing, and to what extent we can think about brains like computers. We discussed the between neurotransmitters and neuromodulators in the brain, including what some specific neuromodulators like dopamine and serotonin are doing. And we also talked about some research in his lab that's starting up that has to do with serotonergic psychedelics, things like psilocybin and LSD, including how he thinks about whether the subjective effects of psychedelics are likely to be important for the therapeutic and neuroplastic effects that psychedelics have. As always, if you enjoy the content I'm producing, please like, share, and subscribe. You can tune into the audio version on Apple, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. You can watch the video version on YouTube, Odyssey, or Rumble. And you can subscribe to my free weekly newsletter at mindandmatter.substack.com. You'll get updates about the podcast, as well as interesting research and other content related to the topics that I discuss on the show. And if you subscribe, whether that's as, as a free subscriber or a paid subscriber, it really helps the podcast keep going and keep growing. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can make Mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure, and vitamin D is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Zach Mainen. Professor Zach Mainen, thank you for joining me. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Can you start off by just telling everyone a little bit about who you are and what your scientific background is? Okay. I'm a a neuroscientist. Um, I'm working here in Lisbon. Uh, It was nice of you to come all the way here. Uh, We're at the Center for the Unknown. Uh, been here since about 2008 and before that I was in the US I'm an American and for about 30 years now I've been working my way through various parts of neuroscience trying to understand how the brain works and I frequently look at this through the lens of computational neuroscience which is trying to understand 
not literally, but metaphorically, and using tools from uh, computers, science, artificial intelligence as a, a way to try to think about how the brain works, but always sort of imagining it's far more complicated than, than we actually uh, can conceive at this moment. Yeah, so actually I want to ask you about computational neuroscience um, just as a field I guess uh, a lot of a lot of times you see uh, computer analogies getting made to try and explain or understand what brains are doing can you talk a little bit for people that don't have a background in this field about you know to what extent are our brains like digital computers and to what extent are neurons in the brain actually computing things and what does that mean Okay, it's a good good question and a fair question. So I would say the computer metaphor is a metaphor, and all ways of explaining the brain are metaphors. The computer metaphor is probably the best one we have in a very general sense because it's the best technology that we have. You know, the outside of the human brain, which is the most complicated object we know of in the universe, the next would be digital systems that we build. Now, if we get into the specifics, is it a digital computer in the style that we use, uh, you know, in my cell phone or, or in your laptop? Of course, it's not. Um, but in a, in, in a sense, the computational metaphor, which goes along with terms like uh, information, uh, functions, uh, networks, it, it, these are all computational metaphors. And Things have developed in the 20th century and, and, and into this century with increasingly sophisticated forms of computation, which have come to resemble, to some degree, uh, the way that the, the that the brain works more so than they did, say, in the I don't know 19, 1980s, right? So even your cell phone now might have a chip that has a, a kind of hardware design that that's inspired a bit by a neural network as opposed to the traditional central processing unit and memory that that that's the, the you know kind of bread and butter of computers and at the software level uh, as everyone is now uh, more than aware of it's uh, it's AI is has come to mean machine learning which is is also is basically another way of, of now saying a kind of neural network uh, type of type of processing. So it's so it's it's all it's all a metaphor. Um, but from the technology side, it's become clear that it's a very powerful way of processing information. And I think from the neuroscience side, or from maybe the biology side, it's the most sophisticated way that we have to think about what might be going on in, inside the brain. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, another interesting thing here is um, you mentioned how, you know, when people talk about AI and machine learning, they're often talking about neural networks. And these are pieces of software which are kind of inspired by stuff that we've learned in terms of how the brain is structured and architected. Can you maybe just give people a, a very basic sense of like, how that developed? What, what exactly does it mean to have, you know, software, AI software that's inspired by the architecture of the brain? And what's like a core screen description of what kind of architecture we're, we're actually talking about there? Yeah. So when we say neural networks, um, we mean something like there are a bunch of units uh, which resemble abstractly 
the units of the brain, which are neurons. And so the units in a neural network are somehow a bit similar to neurons. They, uh, there are many of them, and they pass very simple messages in a kind of parallel fashion. So, so in the brain, there would be you know, billion, billions of them. And in, a, in an AI uh, model, uh, there probably are usually not billions, but there are many, many, many. And they're organized into generally layers. Uh, in the brain, there are not strictly layers, but there are um, areas that pass information from one to another. And each area is composed of a whole bunch of neurons or units. Um, so you could think in the most simple terms of there being an input, like, say, visual information coming into the visual system to the retina and then through the visual cortex. And each stage in processing has, a, a, in parallel processes, uh, an array of information, like the pixels in a camera uh, correspond to units in your retina. And that information then goes through a series of connections, which in the brain would be called synapses, and in a neural network are simply an, an array of passes information from, say, one vector multiplied by a set of weights, which gives you another vector. Uh, so there's a sort of structural analogy and a mathematical simplification. But you picture, rather than things being done serially, things being done massively in parallel and using very, very simple math, basically linear algebra, and a little bit of uh, special nonlinearities, but very, very simple, um, but massive uh, numbers of neurons. And then what was sort of the revolution in the last few years was large uh, numbers of layers. So mm. in the old days, it was, say, a network would have a hidden layer, an input layer, and an output layer. And now it might be dozens of layers. Yeah, let's actually let's dwell on that for a second. So, so what's the uh, biological equivalent to these layers? So, when we talk about input layer, output layer, hidden layer, what does that look like in terms of how the brain is structured? So let's so just to, to pause to say like let's we start start by saying where things are similar, and then we can, we can say endlessly how none of this is really uh, literally true. Uh, when I was taught this stuff, uh, when I was, uh, I guess, an undergrad, I was an undergrad in the late 80s, there was sort of a period of excitement about neural networks, but there wasn't the computing power, there wasn't the data. So the things were not amazing with what they could do. Uh, but they were f effectively very, 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 very similar. And what I was told at the time was, or one what the sort of phrase was, neural networks are exactly like the brain, except for three things, space, time, and probability. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, it's all the same, right? So it's a very, very coarse approximation. But so you ask specifically about layers. Um, uh, we think generally in neuroscience of the brain as having areas and each area, say, in the cortex has several layers, cell layers. And so uh, that would be an example. If we go to the visual cortex, um, there are cells distributed across, uh, across the cortex in the depth of the cortex. 
And those are structured into denser layers of cells and sparser layers of cells. And cells within a layer tend to be more connected to cells in that layer. And there are specific patterns of connections between layers that constitute some kind of uh, canonical processing algorithm. However, all of that detail, say, of what's going on in the cortex is not something that's typically put into the kind of artificial neural networks that we're talking about when we talk about uh, what's in your cell phone or what's running on a large language model or what have you, mm -hmm. right? It, so, but when we talk about, say, like an input and an output layer, yeah. if we're talking about a brain or an animal, what's the input layer? So if we talk about that larger scale, um, if we had the input layer, it would be the sensory periphery. So it could be the retina, could be the uh, receptors in the skin, it could be uh, in the cochlea for, for sound. The output layer would be a pattern of muscle contractions. Uh, it could be uh, limb movements, I see. So the input, the input layer is where sensory information enters the system. The output layer is the system generating like a movement or a behavior from that. And then there's a bunch of layers in between that that's are super right. complicated and we don't really understand them, but, but that's the basic idea. Information is right. coming in and it's eventually going out. And so that basic kind of structure that we see in the brain, which has like an anatomical reality to it, even though it's super complicated, there's like literally layers and parts of the brain the software that AI people create sort of is inspired by that structure and they've, they've kind of made it look the same way. That's right. The thing to emphasize is that is this parallelization. So the use, term used to be parallel distributed processing. So in a, in a ordinary computer, you could think of information lining up to get into the CPU and then get distributed. So it was a serial process and in neural networks, because there's a, many neurons in a single layer, information is flowing in parallel. That's kind of the, the way we think of the big trick. But there's a couple other things. I mean, from there, we can sort of start expanding to make things a little bit more realistic or interesting. And I guess first thing to mention briefly is what makes all of this work and why we call it machine learning, uh, for example, this is a synonym you probably most people have heard why machine machine learning is so important is because rather than orchestrating or architecting these connections uh, beforehand or based on some kind of abstract ideas or guesses, there's a learning rule. So the connections between neurons are, uh, are dynamically adjusted to be stronger or weaker based on what's called a learning rule, mm -hmm. which, which is just that, just the way of changing the connection. And the learning rule can be fairly simple and result in a fairly complicated pattern of changes because the learning rule is going to depend on the input and, and on the output and can be made more or less complicated. But by applying a fairly simple learning rule to... Uh, a machine digesting data, let's say. Uh, so say we're feeding uh, an AI images from the internet. In order to teach the, neuro the, the machine, the neural network, about those images, what's happening is your, your uh, in 
inputting images at the input layer, then the, the network uh, processes them, the information flows through the network to the output layer, and then the learning rule says, say, the output is not correct, let's change the connections so that the output is more like what is desired. I see. This is called a supervised, it's an example of a learning rule, but it's a supervised learning rule. So say, if we're trying to teach the network how to categorize dogs and cats, mm -hmm. and we feed it a lot of images, each time the neural network gets an image, the information flows through, and depending on the pattern of connections, outcomes cat or dog. And if every time it, it, you tell it the right answer, you can propagate that this correct, in, correct answer through the network, updating all the weights so that what comes out the next time is more likely to be, to be correct. And this way it's possible to train these networks to do cat-dog categorization, but it turns out um, really incredible things happen with very few ingredients of, of this type. So you end up with something as complicated as uh, the, the language processing models like GTP3 that can take text and give you responses that sound like a human are, are using a little bit more complicated algorithms, but essentially the same sort of strategy, very large simple network with a very interesting kind of learning rule. I see. So the idea is information comes into the system. There's a bunch of units that are either literally neurons, if we're talking about a brain, or something metaphorically like a neuron, if we're talking about a piece of AI software. Information goes in, and there's some notion of like correct or incorrect at the end. So to use the cat-dog analogy, you might give a bunch of images that are labeled cat, a bunch of images that are labeled dog. The the computer makes some kind of model of those things and then you give it new images and you can say like okay if it guessed it was a cat and it was correct you can say correct and if it's if incorrect you say incorrect and then the whole thing sort of updates if it gets it wrong in a way that doesn't require a human being to go in and specifically engineer the changes but sort of automatically happens based on this general learning rule that's right okay that's right. So what now what we're describing is one kind of learning rule. It's a supervised learning rule because we said let's say we know the answers. So this is a way to get to get the network to classify say complicated patterns in the data. But oftentimes the correct answer isn't known, the correct answer isn't available, mm. and for those cases there are other sorts of learning rules. So another form of learning is unsupervised learning. And there you're saying you're actually saying interestingly network here's some data like just come up with some idea of how to how to deal with it and typically that means forcing the network to kind of abstract so you give it say very complicated images with millions of pixels but you ask the network to compress that information and reproduce the images again on the other end so by compressing them into some very small format the network learns without supervision to come up with a good way of re-representing the images uh, in order to reconstruct them. And that is a kind of example of unsupervised learning process, which will make a network that kind of knows about images. You can tell that that, that network would know about images because, for example, you could look at the, the, the middle layers and ask what's going on there, and you'd start to see things that that actually, in some cases, resemble things that you would see if you rec record from a neuron mm. in a brain, which is kind of remarkable. 
or you would see things that were meaningful. And th this space in the middle is sometimes called the late latent space of the network. It's these hidden layers is where the magic is happening. But like the brain with these networks, sometimes we don't really know because it wasn't crafted, that these latent spaces, these hidden layers, because the learning rule is doing the work. We know the learning rule, we know the data set, but we don't know what the solution was found. So sometimes a machine learning person is in this weird situation of not being able to explain why the answer is what it is, mm. which is a kind of fun fun way where you know the brain the, the network the machine becomes more like the person not necessarily in the way that we would like it to becomes inscrutable i see is that why like so like um it was a few years ago now when google's google DeepMind created the um ai that could play go and it was beating you know world champion go players and as they were watching all of this happen, they had like, I think they had like expert Go players like watching, watching what was happening. And basically, if I remember correctly, a lot of them would watch what the AI was doing and they couldn't discern any strategy. It wasn't obvious what was going on. And yet the AI was winning like reliably. Is that what you mean? That like, we don't, when you say we don't know what's going on in the hidden layers is that the, the AI is coming up with strategies that basically no human being would come up with in their own head. Yeah, something like that. I mean, uh, I guess what what's interesting where this comes up is let, let's say we're using uh, AI to decide who gets a, a, a loan. You know, so so there's a data your credit application is being processed, and instead of a person deciding, you're feeding it into a machine. So you're teaching it something, but the what what you're teaching it is not explicit criteria for why did you reject this application why do you accept that application you're just say feeding it the average reliable say the reliability scores of previous applications and so then the network is learning something in the hidden layers to try to 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 do that task and then in the end it is a statistical model of what happens in the past that probably is predictive of the future. But if you ask it, why did you suggest to reject application X? Um, you could look at what pattern was produced in the network by that application, but it doesn't necessarily interpretable, even though you can see. So in other words, you, you can look at the network, uh, you can look at the weights, you could look at the hidden layers and what happened in the hidden layers. It's a bit like looking at the brain and going in and uh, with a recording electrode or a MRI machine and trying to look at what's going on in the brain. But there's no guarantee that in either case, there's something that is human interpretable, right? The, the problem gets kind of split up in ways that are that are just complicated because that's not the arc. That's not the way it was architected it was architected by specifying the rule but you can sort of discover the, the 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 engineer behind the neural network can kind of discover things about the the networks that they create because they don't it's not just what you get out is is what you put in and this is in contrast to what what was the old uh way of doing ai which was to sort of engineer it by hand with rules to, to, to sort of explicitly have if-then statements. Yeah. So if you go to the previous generation of chess-playing computers or Go-playing computers, they would, they would have knowledge which was essentially input by chess experts or, it, or other domains. You would have experts trying to tell machines through sort of machine-speak 
uh, how to do the task. Explicitly specifying, like, if this, do this. Explicitly. And in the brain, you know, there's no creator of the brain who explicitly said they're going to be areas or they're going to be simple answers. So when we go back and, you know, coming back to neuroscience, um, because I'm not, I am not a, a, an AI engineer, I'm a neuroscientist, but I think a lot of these things are relevant that we shouldn't necessarily expect the architecture of the brain to make sense to simple hypotheses. Uh, we try to look to net- networks for inspiration, mm-hmm. and what we see there is not always necessarily hope-inspiring, right? So I'm saying, so even in the case where we we have a network that some engineer designed, we know exactly what the architecture is, we know exactly what the learning rule is, we know exactly what the data was, doesn't mean that the network is understandable uh, to, to, to a person that didn't, that wasn't, you know, that, that, uh, that has all the information, right? Even if, even if you know all of that, which in the case of the brain, we, we don't know what the learning algorithms are, we don't quite have the entire architecture, although there's some progress in mapping the connectivity of the brain, um, and we certainly don't have the ability to record from all the all the units, all the neurons. Um, if we if we did, we we still might not be able to to give simple answers to to how any particular behavior is working. So I'm a, I mean I'm a bit don't another way to say this sounds pretty pessimistic but like another thing another way we we call this you know job security right there's a (laughs) there's a lot a lot of puzzles that will keep us busy for a long time as 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 researchers yeah and there's um another thing that might be worth unpacking up front is you know we talked about input layers output layers hidden layers or stuff happening in between. Um, we talked about how the input layer for, for the body or the brain is, is your sensory organs. That's where information's coming in. The output layers is like the behavior that's generated from all of the information that gets processed in all of these layers of complexity. There's also a notion in neuroscience that you often hear, which is uh, feed forward versus feedback or, or top down versus bottom up. Can you explain what that is for people and how neuroscientists use those terms? Yeah. That's a good. That's a good point. Um, so, if we think about feed feed forward and feedback from the perspective of input and output, feed forward is connections that pass from the input toward the output, and feedback is is information coming the other way. And in a very simple network, when you think about the activity, an artificial network, the activity is entirely feed forward. In for say the example of the image network that was getting pictures and doing cat dog classification, the activity passes forward. The learning process passes information backwards. Mm. Uh, Typically in that type of supervised learning, if you think about it, how is the, how are the connections toward the, toward the input side going to learn about the output? Well, something needs to convey information backwards in the brain. Um, there's a lot of feedback. So there's a lot of connectivity, sometimes more backwards connections than forwards connections. In the brain, because there's so many layers, so much complexity in between, sometimes it's not even entirely clear whether something is forward or back. There's a very complicated pat- pattern of connections. But if you look at a sensory system where you're one step from the retina or one step from the olfactory epithelium, 
that connects the nose to the brain. It's quite clear what is feed forward and, and what is feedback. And you can ask, what are all those feedback connections doing? And uh, that question was, was uh, you know, a hot question 30 years ago and still a, a hot question 30 years later. I think we, we don't really know uh, the level of architecture entirely how to think about feedback. One conjecture would be that it has something to do with um, a kind of uh, a kind of learning process. People are trying to think of ways to map some of the algorithms that are used in artificial neural networks uh, onto the brain that and those networks involve uh, the, some of those learning rules involve passing, information about the correct answer backwards and that's one tempting uh it's a tempting thing to try to figure out how the brain might be doing the same but um it's a very interesting and i think an unsolved uh kind of problem and what, what exactly all that all the feedback is is doing mm -hmm. and when we you know when we record from neurons and we try and figure out what they're doing and we're thinking at least metaphorically about you know brains being like computers in some ways are there any clear examples of neurons in the brains of animals doing a very clear computation and you know what 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 is what does that look like if it's there that's an interesting question so a a, a clear computation so so an example where we know what we have a we have a clear way to think about what a particular um, brain area is doing. Yeah, like Let one like one that I think you hear about often, or that's maybe a famous um, potential example of this is there's neurons in the brain that release dopamine, and some of these neurons do something called a reward prediction error. And my understanding uh, okay. is that was that was conceived of before it was actually found in the brain. And I was just wondering if you could explain like what, what that kind of thing is and, and what, it, what do we actually mean when we say that like we've recorded neurons that do a, a thing like that. Okay, let me give you a brief abstract answer and then let's get into dopamine and so on. Um, so the way to ask that question is to, is to basically say, okay, I have, a, I have a, a function or a task that I think the brain is doing or the organism is doing mm -hmm. so that might be detecting uh detecting moving dots on the screen like i've trained the animal to detect whether the dots are moving left or right and then i i can come up with i try to come up with some description of what's the optimal way to do that mm. if i were a computer or if mm -hmm. i was an engineer and then I look and see whether the behavior of the animal is optimal. And then I look at whether the pieces of the brain that are involved in that behavior are doing the things that they ought to in order to support the behavior. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty, that, that is in a way the, the gold, the holy grail of, of, of neuroscience or the bits of the grail in a way are to kind of find what is the brain optimizing? What is the function that it's performing? Mm. Trace that down to the, to the substrates. And because, but however, because there are many, many possible functions, a story like that, there's not one of them. There's many, many stories like for each task or function you came up with, there'd be a potentially another story. So the simple ones, some of them, like if you go to a very simple, relatively simple or organism, 
uh, like a, I don't know, horseshoe crab, mm-hmm. and you look at the eye of a horseshoe crab, there you can tell a story about how the eye of the horseshoe crab evolved to, to be able to discriminate uh, visual input. So one of the simpler eyes that you can deal with in biology, and you can look at the wiring in the eye and kind of get a fairly satisfying answer about certain certain things. If you go to the human brain and you ask, you know, what's the function of the visual system and what in the architecture, the problem explodes in complexity and you kind of have to take it little piece by little piece. Um, so that's, but that is what we're, that many of us in computational neuroscience would say that, that, that that's one of the, one of the goals is really to be able to understand really well a particular function and how it's, whether it's being computed optimally and and what exactly are all all the pieces i see but there but there's i guess the 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 point is there are many examples in the brain where in many different systems where like the neurons are computing things they're they're doing i think we can say that akin to subtraction or akin to things that our computers like are, are doing at a very basic level um it's interesting i hesitate to say that well, it, it's hard to say it's hard to say you've really explained any particular part of the brain. So say we have a recording from a part of the brain called the hippocampus, which mm-hmm. is involved in functions like navigating the environment. And it's deep in the brain. And But we have, imagine, really good recordings from the hippocampus. And we see uh, some some interesting activity. And that activity correlates with uh, with where the animal is in the environment that is a particular cell fires is activated when the animal is in one corner of its of its environment and not anywhere else um we're pretty sure that the the hippocampus is computing something um it, it but it's just to say that's a nice way to think about it but is it really just computing the place we don't know it's probably more complicated if we looked at more features the environment, we'd find out there were more complicated things going on. So I'm just saying we don't, we, I think saying that it's a computation is more like an assumption of this kind of, of this field. Mm. That's the way we're committed to thinking about the brain. It's not a conclusion. The conclusion is more, what is the computation? The computational neuroscience is just the field that thinks this is a, a useful way to think about everything, mm-hmm. right? So it's more like the, the the layer of assumptions. I see. I see. So, so, so you wanted so to get into dopamine. Versus this area is pretty interesting because you asked me. You you were mentioning reinforcement learning. I think so. To get there, one step I wanted to to put on the table that I didn't mention. I we talked about supervised learning in which there was an answer. We talked about unsupervised learning in which there's no answer. Network has to figure it out all by itself. Third class of learning, generally speaking, is reinforcement learning, where there's kind of a hint. It's not a full answer, but imagine the environment is saying good or bad. Mm. And you could think of this like if you were training an animal to do a trick, uh, if you gave it a food reward, you're not telling it what it has to do. You're telling it you just did something useful. Yeah. There's some intrinsic property of the animal that's like you know, we all experience this, like, right, we don't have to learn to have emotions that we like or don't like. It's like our body sort of just creates these things. And that helps us uh, directionally learn where to go because we want to naturally reproduce the the good feelings and avoid the bad feelings. Yeah. Yeah. You might say evolution has, has built in 
you know, some kind of some kind of hardware that doesn't need much interaction with the environment, and that is like telling the animal you need to avoid extreme temperatures, you need to find food when you're hungry. Those things are not in a in a strong sense learned. They're innate. They're, they're the evolutionary you know necessities. And those signals that satisfy these basic organismal needs um, are are leveraged by the brain to to learn more complicated things. So, so you don't need to learn that you actually even this gets in some sometimes some of the things you'd be surprised that animals need a little bit of experience to learn even things like that water is good for quenching thirst mm. almost at that level, but but. More to the point, um, it's good to be fed when you're hungry, but could you can you use that that reward that you got when you finally succeeded in getting the food to understand what you did right to get to get there? Mm-hmm. So imagine there's a you're in a maze or there is a maze with a mouse in a maze, and the goal for the animal is to get out of the maze, and every time that happens, it gets rewarded because it likes to be free and not in in the maze, for example. Then there's a there's a kind of learning rule that uh, that's very useful that allows you to use just that last reward to kind of propagate that conclusion backwards through what happened before that and before that and before that to to construct um, to, to construct based on just that kind of simple simple uh answer um the 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 kind of model that is needed to to get there you know to to say in this case oh i just went left right left and then i got a reward um and then the next time i went left right right and i didn't get a reward through this process of of abstract feedback it's possible to tune the network to to come to understand what's the sequence of things that that should be done, or even to create a more abstract model of of the world. So to go back to machines, like when uh, another example of deep mind uh, trained, you probably remember trained. Uh, actually, the Go is a good example, but I think of the video games. So training a network to play video games um, or Go can be done entirely based on the 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 simple kind of. Uh, reinforcement signal it's called that just tells it how good it's doing without having to tell it um exactly how to play yeah what to play exactly i see so you just bake in some notion of like you scored high or you did good and the computer likes that scare quotes um or 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 the opposite you did bad um and and then just sort of uh the the strategies that emerge from that um don't have to be explicitly programmed into the machine it just sort of happens automatically by giving it these these coarse grained signals of good goodness and badness yeah generally even good generally goodness or absence of goodness is is enough even um but that's another yeah but but yes essentially goodness goodness signals reinforcement signals yeah and go ahead i was just gonna say like you know to to think about it from the perspective perspective of food like you know none of us had to learn to feel hungry we just sort of get this feeling 
and you know you don't like feeling hungry you want to sort of shut that off um and there's many 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 different foods you can eat to shut it off and many different ways you can acquire those foods and none of that what i guess what this approach buys you so to speak is you can have something that's very like coarse grained and crude like there's just this general feeling of i'm hungry and i don't like this and with just that sort of seed of of a signal you can learn in almost uh, infinite number of ways to get food and strategies to to deploy to get there, just with that very simple sort of feeling or that very simple uh, crude signal. I think so. I, I mean, I think that 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 is the the hope. If reinforcement learning theories are borne out, then it's possible to create machines that that on these type of signals do that. Um, but it's the three types of learning probably all have some kind of place. There there are times when we are supervised, like when we go to school and mm-hmm. we get explicit teaching or observation of other people, even animals can can do observational learning in some cases. The unsupervised type where there's no good or bad at all. And you know, for example, language learning is not done on the basis of reinforcement. There there's no constant there are corrections, right? In school, are you speaking correctly, but most learning of language doesn't require explicit grammatical corrections. It's it's entirely done by by uh, kind of self-supervised and observational process. So like so reinforcement learning it's it's a it's a super interesting and important um, topic, but it's it's pretty clear there are multiple forms of learning going on and and uh, probably as we discover more about how to build systems that learn interesting things, we'll come up with even more gradations and, 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 uh, you know, variations on those. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as we're thinking about things like, like learning, um, AI and reinforcement learning, we've talked about, you know, sensory information coming in. We've talked about the idea of, of an output or like a behavior that you generate. We've talked about this notion of feed forward and feedback. Um, there's also this distinction in neuroscience that gets made between uh, like fast neurotransmission, like point-to-point communication between individual neurons, and something called neuromodulation. Can you talk a little bit about what neurotransmission and neuromodulation are and how that starts to, to tie into some of these things? Yeah. So neuromodulation is one of the several ways that neurons communicate with each other. What I'm about to say is a little bit simplistic, I think, but say if you go to the textbook, you see a story something like this. There are uh, fast uh, transmitters, uh, the kind of bread and butter of passing those messages between layers that would be glutamate, the excitatory transmitter, and GABA, the inhibitory transmitter. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there are hormones that are very broad and often slow. So they may be circulating in in your entire body. And in the middle, you have something called a neuromodulator, which is broad. So contrasting to the the fast connections, which are point-to-point, one unit to one unit or one neuron to one neuron through a synapse, when the hormones, which are super general, neuromodulators are very broadly distributed or acting. So, so the neuromodulators tend to come from neurons that are clustered in a in a group, often in the part of the brain called the brainstem, which is a more primitive part of the brain. And then they 
project very widely their outputs or you know their axons to many parts of the of the brain like the cortex or the hippocampus or the basal ganglia and so even a single neuron uh neuromodulatory neuron might cover a reasonable percentage of the entire brain i won't give you a number but <laughs> 20%. So, you know, a single axon could spread all the way through the entire cortex from the front to the back. So, on the other hand, what we now know uh, is that they that those signals are also somewhat fast or at least some of the signaling is also as fast or almost as fast as the classical excitatory and inhibitory uh, signaling. So those neurons may also may release a neuromodulator. Uh, we're about to talk about serotonin and dopamine and so on, and also release glutamate or GABA mm. or even another chemical. And so some of the signals coming from those, those uh, neuromodulatory neurons are slow and some of them, uh, some of them are fast, but it's the feature of, of being very widely distributed that's particularly interesting because having a fast, potentially fast signal that reaches much of the brain at the same time is a relatively uncommon thing in the brain. And it gives those, those neuromodulatory neurons a kind of power to distribute information rapidly uh, that, that makes them just on this anatomical and simple physiological basis special. Mm -hmm. I think that's one thing that we can say we, we, we know their capabilities are probably more than we know, but we, but we know they're kind of interesting in that, that respect. And if we map this onto the, this topic of reinforcement learning, it was noticed um, in 20, 20, 30 years ago, probably earlier that, that, that there's an interesting uh, compatibility here. A reinforcement signal um, is also something in a neural network that that needs to be widely distributed. Everyone needs to know something good just happened, and uh, it would benefit from being temporally precise. Mm. The, the signal should be it just happened now, not a very vague sense of it happened in the last hour. So there's been this this idea that neuromodulators perform this special computational role, and there are various theories about what roles those might be. And there are several different neuromodulators, and there have been, been attempts. Uh, two of the pioneers in this were uh, Peter Diane and, uh, and um, Kenji Doya, uh, who made up theories for dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, and acetylcholine, which are sort of the four you know, big, well-known uh, neuromodulators. I see. So so these neuromodulatory cells in the brain, they are interesting and sort of special and different from many other neurons in the brain in that they the, the neurons themselves, the cell bodies, live in these small little neighborhoods, typically deep in the brain, like in the brainstem. But they, and even though there's relatively few of them, they send out all of their connections over large chunks of the brain. So they're, they're capable of broadcasting signals very widely across many different parts of the brain. And that's, that's different from what a lot of the other neurons look like in the brain. Exactly. And so uh, you mentioned some of them, so dopamine, serotonin, acetylcholine. Um, I want to talk about some of them in a fair amount of detail, but before we get there, you know, when you 
sort of hear the cartoon description of these things oftentimes people often talk about them as if each one sort of has a very well-defined set of roles that are distinct from the other one. So like you will often hear dopamine basically equated with pleasure or motivation. You will often hear serotonin described as being for mood and things like that. Is that too much of an oversimplification? How much do we know about like what, yes. <laughs> what, what they're doing and how do you start to think about that? So it's, so definitely it's an oversimplification. Um, like let's look at, let's look at this, on the one hand, we had we we have glutamate and GABA, and the way we're thinking about those is passing information from place to place. So to sort of say what does glutamate do behaviorally is a bit like the answer is yes or something. You know, the the, the question doesn't quite make sense. With neuromodulators, um, why do we think differently? Why not think it's just another chemical that transmits information in a different way? Why are we tempted to say, oh, it has some function? Well, the answer is because it turns out that most psychoactive drugs, not all, but many of the important ones have some target which is which implicates one of the four neuromodulators. So, so typically, a, a psychoactive drug often is going to interfere with or mimic the signaling of either dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, or acetylcholine, or, or some combination. And because drugs have specific effects, or they have effects, let's say, um, if I gave a drug that I knew activated a dopamine uh, receptor and the drug had a, a particular effect, I could then infer or I might infer that dopamine was somehow involved in that in that function. Or if I blocked the dopamine receptor, I might block that function. Right? So, so there's been a long history of pharmacology on the brain, and pharmacology giving drugs to animals or people allows you to ask that question. It's a it's a it's a, a kind of perturbation of the brain which you can assay at any different level, but mostly it's been assayed at the behavioral level, not at the neural level. So we, we know quite a bit about how drugs affect behavior. And um, that literature let people start imagining what the, the neuromodulators endogenously, intrinsically mm -hmm. would, be, would be doing. But it's kind of a leap of, a leap of induction or, or hypothesizing to do that mapping. In some cases, it's worked remarkably well or at least we've come up with some interesting ideas and in other cases less so mm -hmm. can you uh let's talk about dopamine for a little bit yeah dopamine is our is our is our poster child for success yeah um so there's a couple things i want to discuss here um the first is why does dopamine have a reputation for being tied up with pleasure and addiction and motivation and and if, if you could do your best to sort of describe like sort of what the state of the art of understanding is in terms of dopamine, but like why, like why, why do some people say like, oh, dopamine equals reward or dopamine's important for motivated behavior or things like that? Okay. Let, there's so much data and things to go through that we got to try to keep it high level, but dopamine. Um, so first there are a bunch of drugs that are familiar to, to people. Uh, an example would be amphetamine or cocaine, 
which act on the dopamine system. And those drugs uh, tend to produce a kind of wanting of, of that drug experience. They also tend to be pleasurable, at least initially, although that part seems to be dissociable from the actual wanting part. So that gives this idea that if we activate the system, the dopamine system, we produce something like a reinforcement or or wanting. So this goes back to that reinforcement signal we were mm. we were talking about. Um, there's a another a number of other lines of evidence. One of which would be if you stimulate in the brain electrically, in the area where those dopamine neurons are located, uh, you activate the neurons, and that electrical stimulation that activates the neurons is something that uh, animals uh, find uh, compelling to, to, to do. And it's even been done in people. And, you know, we, 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 it, it hasn't been done, I think, for a while. But it, we know that that, that that somehow mimics a kind of a re- reward signal in, a, in some kind of subjective sense. So people will, will keep pressing, let, let's keep it with animals, but animals will keep pressing the lever to receive uh, uh, cocaine, but they'll also keep pressing a lever to receive stimulation of, of those neurons. Mm. Yeah, and so that starts to look a lot like you know, reinforcement learning in terms of uh, how we theorize um, it might happen. Um, one thing that I wanted to ask about too is, you know, so, so you know, people studied dopamine in the context of natural rewards in terms of drug rewards and things like that. Earlier, we were talking about reinforcement learning and these sort of general teaching rules and things like that, and whether or not neurons are computing things. One of the interesting signals in the brain that was discovered quite a while ago now is that these dopamine neurons, at least some of them, do something called a reward prediction error. And so what is that, and how does that start to tie like the biology of what the cells are doing with this theory about how learning might be happening in a brain? Yeah, so... So it's interesting. I was I was around in Terry Sanowski's lab as a PhD student when Peter Diane and Reed Montague um, uh, were working with ideas like this. They were actually coming from a computer science perspective of reinforcement learning, but they were looking at data, particularly data coming from Wolfram Schultz's lab. And together, these guys came up with this uh, this idea. So the the learning theory um, is is often there are now many variants, but the, the basic idea is temporal difference learning, and the uh, observation is that dopamine neurons uh, display a signal that's very much what you would want from this particular kind of reinforcement learning algorithm called tem- temporal difference learning or T- TD learning, and. To explain that, the thing that we haven't gotten to that um, I should put into the background material is we've been talking about the brain as a kind of feed-forward system where we have the input flowing to the output. But the way we should think about the brain and the way you'd see this diagrammed if we were at the board would be more of a loop. And the idea of the, the loop is something basic to... Uh, what was called cybernetics back in the middle of the last century and is sometimes now called something like predictive coding or uh, or variations thereof. But it's basically 
a very very core idea about how to think about organisms and and the environment where the organism um, produces an action say the motor output that acts on the environment and then the environment in turn um, presents feedback um, in the form of sensory information to to the organism so agent environment loop action and perception loop and the reward signal is part of the uh, perception loop is part of what the environment provides to the agent and in the idea of cybernetics the way what was the problem there was a sort of a control problem you can think of the animal's job or the organism's job is to uh, get get reward or to, to keep things in, in a desired state. And in a very simple version, think about a thermostat as the organism and the environment as the room. So the thermostat acts by controlling the temperature uh, or, sorry, controlling the, the heating element, say, in a, in a heating system. And that somehow... It acts on the room, depending on if the windows are open or closed and how many people are in the room, different things happen. That temperature of the room is sensed, so that's the perception part of the thermostat. And uh, then, the, then the computation that the thermostat has to do is to compare the, the desired temperature, the, the predicted temperature, with the actual temperature and then change uh, its motor output it's the heating controller according to that so in that thermostat example what's really uh, what's critical in this cybernetic loop is to have an expectation of the temperature and to compare it to the actual temperature so, so for the thermostat uh, that's like the goal of the thermostat is to keep the room at that desired temperature uh, but more generally, that the way you might think of that is that the, the thermostat needs to have a model of the room in order to do its job, right? Like the thermostat needs to know how the room is behaving in order to know how much to turn the heater up in order to get, you know, how big is the room, how many people are in the room. So a really intelligent thermostat, if Google were currently designing one, wouldn't just sense the temperature, it would model the whole room, right? It would know you're probably going to come in at this time of day and you'd probably anticipate turning up the heater before you got there or etc. Et so so this is the way we think about the brain. The brain is the thermostat. The brain is trying to keep the environment, you know, keep the body fed and at the right temperature and all these things. And it's DeRay's job is basically to produce motor output behavior to, to do that. And, and to achieve it, it's, it's, it's building a model of, of the, of the environment in order to allow it to know when it does something, what, what's going to happen? How, what do I do now to keep the temperature, uh, so temperature stable, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So reinforcement. So, so the re reinforcement is is fundamentally uh, is 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 a part of this loop that's being compared to the to the expected reinforcement. 
Yeah. So an important thing here is there's this notion of expectation baked into the system and there's an ability to compute a difference between what you expect to happen or what what you expect things to be at or want them to be at and then what the, what you're actually sensing in the environment. Exactly. So so, so in the reinforcement learning field, I'm, I'm putting in this broader context because I think it's helpful for some of the things I think we'll discuss. Um, you could say quite simply, we know that the brain when given a reward in a predictable way can anticipate that a reward is going to come and the error what's happening in this td learning rule this this thing that we think dopamine neurons are doing is the expected reward is being subtracted from the actual reward and i think the way you should think about that is the brain is a is a is a kind of uh, is a loop is in a loop with the environment it's trying to predict what's going on in the environment and there are many signals which uh, which are important for the brain which are basically when the environment doesn't do what the what the brain thinks the environment is going to do it just in general that that's another actually another way to look at that is if if the network was try was being trained in a supervised manner if if there were right answers then uh, if there was an error signal of the difference between the right answer and the answer that was being was currently being given, it's another error signal. So this notion of surprise or error signals as a as a learning signal is is super important and even more general than reinforcement learning. Mm-hmm. Um, th- so the the brain is uh, is constantly forming expectations. Uh, about what's about to happen and when things are as expected it's generally not as interesting or important uh, than when things are not as expected if thing, things are as expected then no need to worry uh, no need to, to to change anything when things are not as expected that may be that you know all of a sudden glucose levels are too low or for some reason an unexpected we, we don't expect dark objects to be coming out of the sky you know if that happened to us right now as you know sophisticated as we are like a big shadow looming over us from outside we would we would freak out um those kind of unexpected things turn out to be really important uh, activators of neuromodulators and just generally make the brain kind of go go crazy so if we step back from the theory one thing that's clear from neuromodulators if you record from those those neurons whether it's dopamine norepinephrine serotonin acetylcholine if you do something suddenly unexpectedly you know loud noises what have you those neurons go crazy hmm. uh it's just it so i think we know really well that one of the design <laughs> features of the brain is that it's really tuned to to have expectations of some sort and to respond to things that are out of the ordinary and the response is to learn is to is to adapt because things that are out of the ordinary uh that the job of the brain is to make them ordinary and that's you know that's sort of the essence of the of why brains are so uh, important from an evolutionary perspective is that they are able to deal with things that never happened before in the history of the organism. So, so something something that is totally out of the ordinary is when learning is 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 important. I see. So at a very very high level, neuromodulators seem to be very intimately connected with 
this notion of uh, learning and changing your behavior and adapting to things that are unexpected, which is exactly what enables animals to move around and exist in variable environments that aren't constant. That's right. That's right. Learning is super important. And the other side of it, generally speaking, would be attention. So in the environment, there are many things to pay attention to, potentially, and at any moment, an organism has to select something to respond to and some things cannot be responded to. Like imagine an animal in a forest or a jungle. There are many noises, there are many plants, there are sounds of all sorts of other animals. Um, there's, there's, it's impossible, even if it was possible to process all that information, it's not possible to direct an adaptive response to everything. So there's a selection that has to go on in terms of what to learn about, what to study in more detail, where to go, that forces a, a selection. And again, surprise or un, um, sometimes it's called uh, saliency is is a function typically of how unexpected the, the thing is, at least for, for the large part of the brain that seems to be devoted to, to intelligent behavior. Those are the things that require intelligence. The things that, that may be, may be routine, but still important. Like you have to always, you know, walking is always important and there's a lot of things going on in walking that, that obviously the brain needs to carry out effectively, but just walking isn't something that neuromodulatory neurons need to worry about because it's just walking, say. You know, you don't need to think about it. So neuromodulators seem to be important when situations when the resources of the brain need to be reallocated in order to deal with something by focusing attention and then learning uh, the outcome of that that interaction, that, mm-hmm. that you know, learning new lessons. And so... To sort of finish off on this part and give people just a very concrete sense of like what some of these individual neuromodulatory neurons do in certain situations. So like in the, in I guess the classic example of a reward prediction error in a dopamine neuron, you train an animal like a mouse or a rat or something that, you know, whenever it hears a beep, it's going to get a, a snack, a piece of cheese or whatever that it likes. When people record from dopamine neurons, what happens to the, what are the neurons doing in terms of their activity when these rewards come as expected versus unexpected? So that's a, so that's a classic experiment is, is, is this type. So the classic experiment was with monkeys, but, but this could be done with uh, like the mouse and the cheese. So if you would deliver the reward, the cheese unexpectedly, then as I've been motivating, you'd see a dopamine response you you the animal wasn't expecting the good a good thing to fall out of thin air and suddenly it it happened you'd see dopamine neurons are excited at that moment if then you put some structure into the into the environment and you always uh, proceeded dropping the cheese by a tone or uh, or a light three seconds before you would deliver the cheese then after a few occasions of that association, the dopamine neurons would do something interesting, which which should be expected based on the story I'm telling. They would stop caring so much about the cheese because the cheese, though it's good, is not unexpected anymore. It's now expected. So the dopamine neurons would now start to uh, find the, the tone very interesting because the tone 
is let's assume unexpected. Um, it, I'm delivering the tone whenever I want, and what it, but whenever I do, I give three seconds later the the cheese. So what the neurons are going to do is stop responding to the cheese itself, even though it's good, and start responding to the thing that predicts the cheese. Mm. And that is the the essence of how the error flows from the uh, thing that was initially unpredicted to something that because of the structure in the environment allowed that unpredicted thing to, to become predictable. And now the animal that, that knows the tone precedes the cheese has a kind of model of the environment, the statistical structure of the experimenter in this case. And the dopamine now starts worrying about when is the tone? When, when is the tone? The last piece of the classic experiment is what happens if you then uh, take, away the cheese in the tone cheese pairing. And here again, there, the mouse has an expectation because the tone has always been followed by cheese, for example, for the last hour. If you now take away the tone, uh, sorry, if you now take away the cheese, uh, the dopamine neurons are now again surprised. And now here's actually where something gets more interesting. The dopamine neurons when they're surprised in this case, are actually disappointed, or at least the classic dopamine neurons. So they respond by a small suppression of activity. Uh, so in the case where things are as expected, where the tone is followed by the cheese, at the time when the cheese is delivered, there's no response from the dopamine neurons. Everything is, is good, but no response. When the tone is present, but no cheese is coming. It's a surprise and a disappointment. Mm -hmm. I was expecting cheese. The dopamine neurons actually shut up a bit. They pause. And so this makes the dopamine signal look like a, a what we call a value signal or a, a valenced signal. It it cares about good or bad. It, it The dopamine neurons fire when the reward was delivered unexpectedly and they're a little bit disappointed when they did expect a reward and it's not forthcoming. So, so they're comparing, if the computation we think that they're doing is, is, is computing the expected value at this moment and the actual value, subtracting the expected from the actual and having a, a signed error prediction, prediction error. I see. So it's as if something like math is being done by the neurons yes. in relation to whether or not good things are happening as expected. As all the stories we're going to tell here, like it's a simplification of what's actually even now known about dopamine neurons, but but as far as those experiments have been pretty widely reproduced in 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 you know certain circumstances, it looks very much like that. Um, the the thing where almost now I come in a little bit is with we, when we look at serotonin, mm. what what do we see? Are all the neuromodulators responding in that situation the same? And the answer is we still don't know the full answer. But uh, for serotonin, there's an interesting difference with with dopamine that I think is quite important. That basically, in a very let's say in a very similar experiment, which maybe we can go into if you want, but but. Whereas the dopamine neurons uh, have this value-oriented signal, the serotonin neurons uh, seem to 
treat disappointments and uh and unexpectedly good things similarly they they care more about the degree of surprise or or salience and they don't actually they don't actually get dis- they 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 fire even for things which are which are unexpectedly bad hmm. so, yeah so they just care about whether or not something surprising happens basically ex- it, 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 so the great so more or less yes more more or less yes so so you could say one is a uh, in computational terms one is one seems to be a signed prediction error and the other case is an unsigned prediction error so you take like the absolute value of the of the value expectation but but actually right so right now we still don't ha- we don't really know all of the details about what serotonin neurons are doing and there are a lot of variations on the these concepts when you dig into the modeling um so one issue is are these neurons dopamine or serotonin really single numbers so we've been talking about it like there's a number for the goodness of the reward or the amount of surprise but actually there's not just one serotonin neuron or one dopamine neuron and it looks likely that the story is not a single scalar value, but rather some kind of distributed representation of more than just one value. Um, we've been talking about the neurons as if they blanket the entire brain with a single signal, but it's not that simple. There seems to be some degree of specificity in the projections between receiving and delivering a kind of um, st- structured structure to the to the to the reinforcement signals Mm -hmm. so before we get into like some of what we're learning about what these serotonin neurons are actually doing in animals um, historically why has there been this association between serotonin and mood where did that come from actually um good yeah serotonin has been <laughs> has been associated with mood as i understand it primarily this came out of um the development of a class of of drugs called selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors which uh, most people are probably familiar ssris prozac etc so these drugs um target the the serotonin system they are thought to increase the availability of the amount of serotonin in the brain although we don't really know extremely well what they actually do uh as much as you would think um and those drugs are for some people effective antidepressants and largely that story of serotonin and mood came out of the uh, the selling of those that class of drugs or the kind of justification of the fact that, well, if they are antidepressants, then serotonin therefore must have something to do with mood. But it was more of a reverse, a reverse inference process than a, you know, than a discovery uh, about serotonin, which then somehow led to the concept of the that becoming an antidepressant. I see. And, you know, when you think about when you think about something like, if you were a psychiatrist, say, thinking about depression and SSRIs and things like that, one thing you think about with depression is, oh, well, when people are depressed, they feel sad. Their mood is low. Um, but another thing that you might point out is um, that a lot of times people with depression 
uh, they they ruminate. They are behaviorally inflexible. They're sort of unwilling to try new things, and they kind of just get stuck in a rut, and they don't think um, anything's going to change. Uh, what what have we started to learn about the potential link between serotonin and this notion of uh, behavioral flexibility, or, or you know, wanting to keep doing the same thing versus trying something new? So that is an is an interesting topic. So. There, there's a line of studies um, that have somehow implicated serotonin into uh, things like uh, cognitive flexibility is one term or um, impulsivity uh, versus, um, I guess, the way I mean, we're putting together now rumination is a pretty different concept, but you could see somehow rumination being a kind of lack of flexibility or a, or a kind of um kind of the opposite of impulsivity like imp- impulsivity is a concept like uh not being able to control your will or not being able to um to act to to withhold acting yeah delay gratification right? but like now that. we're you know so now we're really transitioning from a uh, computational terms that are you know defined in terms of algorithms and ai we're leaving behind physiology and um and uh circuits and now we're entering into you know a world that's largely developed on the basis of pharmacology giving drugs of different types that activate receptors or so on and behavior so most of now what we're going to be talking about is is really only known at the level of if I give a drug like this, then then I and I do a behavioral test like that, and I extract a couple of features of the behavior, what do I get? And I think in all of this, we're on much shakier ground, and we don't know how to map these behavioral experiments onto, or there are many ways to map these behavioral experiments onto the brain or onto models of the brain. Um so that's that caveat said um like a so cognitive flexibility one one type of task or situation that you can set up to illustrate cognitive flexibility is a, a reversal task and the reversal task is actually the one that i described uh, in the mouse example uh where a person or an animal has for some time learned a particular association say a tone and cheese uh, which I also would call a structure in the environment structure the, the structure of the environment and then after having learned something it suddenly encounters a situation that violates its expectations and it calls for uh, forming a new association generally or calls for flexibility Mm -hmm. and now here's where why the problem is quite interesting so imagine you're the you're imagining you're a mouse in the forest and you are used to foraging in a particular site which is like the the tone and in that site i don't know you find acorns and mice let's say seeds i think acorns is probably too big for most mice uh so 
that's your that's that I'm mapping onto the cheese. Like I don't think mice in the wild forage for cheese, and I don't think there are there are are tones. So we're just going to make it a bit more ecologically minded, and we put the mouse in the forest in a particular location finding seeds so every day the mouse goes to this location and finds seeds so it forms this expectation that that tree is a good source of food then one day uh it wakes up and goes to the tree and and there's no there's no seeds what is the mouse to do should the mouse basically start unlearning or just forget what it just learned let's suppose it goes back another couple days and there's still no seeds should it should it just relearn this association so that now that location is no good anymore and just go try somewhere else or should it be more sophisticated and say huh maybe there's something else going on here and something else about the world has has changed that this tree is currently no good but who knows maybe in two weeks the tree is going to be a good source of seeds seeds again right so the difference would be in the second case let's not erase what we knew about this association let's keep it let's put it in a different compartment and let's let's learn something something else maybe there's another sign that that things are different maybe the season has changed maybe there's signs of another type of mouse a competitor and that's why the seeds are gone so so this kind of situation where expectations have been formed then they're violated calls for something more than just relearning it calls for cognitive sophistication which or you could say a kind of flexibility to us to start building more complicated representations of the world mm-hmm. representations in which things are not things can change from place to place and time to time and th- this is um th- this is what uh theorists computationally think is going on even when the mouse learns about the cheese that there there's evidence that the brain has not forgotten the original tone cheese association when it unlearns that it's actually still there uh if you bring back the association the mouse the mouse quickly relearns the 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 old information so it rather seems like the brain has has figured out there are multiple contexts here there's one context in which this association holds true and there's a new context in which it it doesn't hold hold true so the brain is starting to build uh, a a map a map of the world not just in the sense of space but in a higher order sense that that for example that the seasons is a is a is a thing which changes the availability of resources. I can be in the same place in a different time of year and things will be different. So I don't just need a map of, of one map of the whole forest. I need a different map depending on which season it is or which time of day it is and so on. Uh, so this, this kind of map, cognitive map making is something that we don't really know so much about. Um, it's not been that studied in animals. It's not that easy to study in people. And if serotonin 
so I didn't really even, ex- I didn't give you the explanation of why we think serotonin is involved in this, which is a bit backwards, but let, so let me, fi- let me fill that in. But basically I'm going to, I'm going to tell you why it seems serotonin is involved in that mm-hmm. sort of process, which makes for a lot of interesting possibilities. So, so, so the evidence, and, and sorry for giving this backwards, the evidence is you can do pharmacological manipulations to inhibit serotonin and animals are slower to do this kind of relearning when the association changes. I see. It's pretty much pretty much that simple. And in the case in the case of uh looking at the signals from the serotonin neurons, whether the association gets worse or it gets better, like whether the outcome is worse than expected or better than expected, you still get serotonin signals. So it's appropriate for saying your map is wrong your your model is wrong it doesn't matter whether it's you're you're disappointed or you're or you're elated your model is wrong time to time to fix the the, fix the model so fixing the model might be just making a subtle adjustment like i need to be a little bit faster next time but it can also be this kind of wholesale oops i'm in the wrong context like i thought Mm. i was i thought i was at the right time to get the seeds, but maybe I'm maybe I'm off with my timing. If you start think, thinking about this, we're doing this all the time. Our behavior is is completely different depending on the situation. What's right in the office at this moment is completely inappropriate for uh, to do in the middle of the cafeteria. That perhaps or what's appropriate to do in your bathroom is completely inappropriate to do on a zoom call as as you would not want to find out right so that's that's a that's exactly this kind of the same stimuli the same immediate set of objects isn't always processed to produce the the same output it's very context dependent so if we start thinking about mental illness it's said of schizophrenia, for example, that a lot of it is not doing the wrong things. It's doing the right things at the wrong time. Mm. Or if we think about depression, a lot of it is also appropriate, but inappropriately prolonged or, or inappropriately ex- expressed yeah. or intense and so on. So, so if, if serotonin, um, if serotonin has to do with these sorts of things, the, so the first thing that, that, comes to mind from these observations is we're thinking about a signal that has to do with learning or adapting or changing the rate of learning or the but but it's really even more complicated because it's about this sometimes it's about deciding it's not about when to begin to learn it's about when to divide your world into different boxes Mm -hmm. it's just something something that that's a little bit more um it's a little bit more more complicated to start thinking about how would that be affected if it wasn't working right if you if a person was no longer making the right boxes for their experiences and they were they were not able to be in the right situation that that they should be it's somewhere there but they're they're, they're splitting the situations too much or they're merging them i see but in general it sounds like experimentally what we know reasonably well so far is that when serotonin neurons are less active, that tends to be associated with keeping uh, doing the same thing 
Um, so, so an animal will preserve whatever behavioral strategy it's taking. And when they become more active, that's associated with changing what you're doing. That that's exactly, that's the tendency. So think about going back to the error signals, serotonin neurons and other neuromodulators as error signals are generally saying something about the model is wrong. So switch, do something yeah, different. We've been Update. surprised what was expected didn't happen. So you need to change, right? You need to change. Uh, absence of serotonin or other neuromodulators tends to mean don't worry. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. So, so in, <laughs> so that, so it's a very crude, it's probably way too crude at, at a certain level, but that's, that's a way of thinking about serotonin, which is sort of uh, on the same plane as the way we're thinking about dopamine. But rather than thinking of serotonin as all, another type of signal for good, like a positive mood signal, uh, which which um, which which doesn't seem to be to be the case, and that the neurons also fire for things which are not good. Uh, it it seems like serotonin should be thought of as more of a flexibility, uh, well, as having the impact of flexibility, among other things, presumably, <laughs> uh, but but being signaled by by signaling. Uh, errors by signaling surprise. surprise. Yeah. Interesting. And I mean, that does start to get you thinking about, you know, why it is that different serotonergic drugs have the kinds of effects they have, um, you know, to the extent that SSRIs are effective, um, right? Someone in, in a depressed state needs to get out of it. Um, it, it would sort of make sense based on what you were just telling us that if you elevate serotonin levels, that at least for some people, that's going to help them change their behavior and sort of remap stimuli to, uh, you know, how the, how you should respond to them in a, in a different context or in different contexts, uh, plural. Um, or, you know, when you start to think about things like the classical psychedelics and what they're being investigated for therapeutically, um, you're sort of stimulating certain serotonin receptors and, you know, in general, the kinds of experiences that, that people report and the studies they've done with depression stuff, it, you know, at least directionally, it's involved in, uh, you know, updating your behavior, becoming more flexible and less, uh, less rigid or less stuck where you're at. Is that how you start to think about why some of these serotonergic drugs have the general kinds of effects they do? Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's pretty right. Um, so this idea that serotonin um, has this function is, I would say, not by any means a consensus in the field. I'm not even sure if it's a consensus in my lab. <laughs> <laughs> but but if we go to psychedelics, um, or in fact, there's a bit of history with this with, with serotonin. There, there is this idea of kind of a change promotion, like a behavioral change. Um, I think Michael Pollan's book was titled uh, How to Change Your Mind. And this idea goes back to at least the 60s. Um, so that's there, uh, as a, as a kind of thread and with, uh, I guess with serotonin, with SSRIs, there are also experiments showing, uh, for some time, a kind of increase in types of neural plasticity, mm -hmm. like during development, there are types of plasticity involved in, you know, large scale changes into the, to the nervous system. Like when you have a, 
an animal that develops with one eye closed. This is an experimental paradigm where you can see kind of irreversible changes or, or hard to reverse changes in the visual system. And serotonin seems to be able to un, unleash the ability to change, to rewire uh, ocular uh, effects in the visual cortex. Mm -hmm. And this, this has led to kind of a, um, and you know, one model that that I thought was quite uh, early and influential was this idea of just uh, undirected change uh, as as a function of the let's say this class of drugs and perhaps perhaps the system is not literally just that but thinking about this as kind of a null hypothesis almost like a very simple hypothesis is uh, undirected change so if you're if you're not really if you're kind of stuck and you're not really in the right place then turning up the knob on these kind of error signals turning up the knob on on change uh can be can be good you know if you're in if you're randomly changing um if you were in a really 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 bad place then maybe random is is better than on average anything um to me, this recalls the now that we're talking about. I guess we're getting into depression, etc. Uh, a bunch of the therapies that work the best for depression are still ones we don't like to talk about that much. But things like electroconvulsive therapy, hmm. so ECT uh, is a super effective antidepressant. Just a crude sort of uh, shake the system uh, out of wherever it's at right now. Yeah, yeah. ECT, TMS um, are the most effective uh, antidepressants. They're just sort of not the first line because they have side effects. Pretty much all these drugs have, in some sense, sense side effects. So I have a, a, a colleague as a practicing psychiatrist who, and I know others who would say, you know, if I was severely depressed, this would be the thing I would go go try. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So ECT has a super bad reputation. Yeah, I mean, naturally, you know, when you say it, I think of like the 1950s exactly. and like these very crude, primitive-looking uh, psych wards where they're just electrocuting people, basically. Yeah, exactly. And it used to be done in a way that, you know, well, there's a whole context there. Like if we talk about the context of patients who were, you know, possibly against their consent being subjected to ECT, we get a kind of horror story, one flew over the cuckoo's nest, etc. Exactly, yeah. But likewise, if we go back to the early days of uh, psychedelics and we see uh, prisoners being investigated uh, largely against their consent uh, with psychedelics, or we see the CAA experimenting on uh, unconsenting um unconsenting subjects with psychedelics it's all a horror story right mm -hmm. so ect i you know personally i agree it, it seems like something i would i would tend to avoid but i think it, it's my bias that it sounds like electrical shocks are going to destroy something that should should be as it is but we don't really know um you know we know that there's you know occasionally some memory issues benzodiazepines also cause you know memory issues yeah. et, cetera, et cetera so i don't know there's there, we should be a little we in a sense since we don't know what any of these things are really doing like to say psychedelics are better there's a whole lot of considerations that that need to be taken into account um nothing nothing is perfect um 
but it's the same. But I guess my point in bringing this up is certainly not to say that ECT is is better than psych- uh, psychedelics. I don't think it is, but that to say that the theory is about the same, which yeah. is you shake the snow globe however it's put, and if you're in a bad place, you m- will more likely than not end up in a in a in a better place. Well, that's a pretty low low bar, yeah, right for for things, but. But you know, from a science perspective, it it maybe it sounds a bit bleak, and we would like these things to be doing something more interesting behaviorally. Like we would like psychedelics to be giving mystical experiences and not shaking the snow globe. But if it's a neuromodulator, I think a better way to think of it to begin with is something closer to very very crude. Uh, shocked, shocked to yeah, the system. Almost just like a reboot. Um, yeah. Have you tried turning it on and off yet? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's forcing us to ask, not you know, not to put so much weight into what you know. We don't put a lot of weight into the drug itself. It's the drug's ability to, to interact with this, this sort of broadcast system that is naturally providing a very general, widespread thing to the brain, whatever exactly that is. Exactly, yeah. and since we since we can only interpret that broadcast signal insofar as we understand what the machinery that it's interacting with is doing in the first place, mm-hmm. we kind of push the problem from drug to neuromodulator to neuromodulatory system to brain itself. Mm-hmm. And so then we're back to, you know, what is this process that I, I am talking about with cognitive remapping? How does that work? Is that really going on? Some of these things also get pushed into... Is this a thing where we know what the right thing to do is, or is it, or is it, you know, is it, um, is it possible to, um, is it possible, for example, to design a, a, an artificial system that will suffer from the same problems that a human suffers from? So this is kind of the flip of of what we talked about before, and I find it an interesting sort of thing to push. And so normally we say, we think of computers as a metaphor for understanding the brain, but if we're right, the brain should be a metaphor for understanding computers too, right? So we get inspiration from neurons and how they work to design better computer systems. But why not behavior? Like, why do we get depressed? Is that just like a bug that just couldn't be worked out? Like, why? Uh, Is it, you know, we can throw the problem onto all sorts of incidental we were not adapted to this or that. Uh, I don't know what, but can we also ask, is depression the inevitable consequence of the way that a system is designed? It just cannot be avoided if we get to a system that is actually as adaptive as possible. Mm. It's not clear that that, that, is, that is a false statement. So we don't tend to think of you know, we tend to think of building computers that can do intelligence, that can do all the features of human behavior that we love we don't think of wanting to design a system that gets depressed but but is it possible that some of these maladaptive features of the brain are inevitable likely consequences of something that is designed well for reinforcement learning or whatever exactly yeah exactly or they're they're due to compromises that just yeah that, that cannot be that cannot be a better solution just the best of all possible systems is that it's as flexible as possible, right? Or it's op- it's optimized in such a way that that um, 
I think that that that's uh, you know something we can't say all that much about, but it's an interesting it's an interesting way to look at to look at the problem. Yeah, and um, you know it is interesting to think about what these psychedelics are doing in terms of interfacing with the serotonin system insofar as it relates to this potential story about behavioral flexibility. Um, do we know very much about what, you know, have people done experiments such as uh, just recording from the cortex or somewhere else in the brain when you give an animal psychedelics or when you uh, fire up the dorsal raphae neurons and, and, um, the serotonin neurons that live in the brainstem. Do we know very much about what's happening um, in terms of large-scale brain activity when you either give a serotonergic drug like a psychedelic or when you um, make the serotonin neurons themselves fire more? So two, so sort of two, two topics. One is, one is more what do psychedelics do to brain activity? And the other, I think, if I got it correct, is is like how does it actually interact with the endogenous? Yeah, what's system? the what's the endogenous response of the brain when serotonin neuron, serotonin neurons become more or less active? And to uh, what okay, extent okay, are psychedelics okay. mirroring that or something? Uh, okay, yeah. sorry. Yeah, there's also the question that, that I thought you were asking is, um, which I think is quite important, is how do psychedelics uh, modulate or interfere with or amplify the the endogenous function and I'm I'm gonna give a slightly sheepish. I don't think we really know that much yet about any of that. So I say that. Um, I mean, certainly there are experiments in humans with psychedelics, with MRI, and from a systems uh, or computational point of view, these are fairly um, thirty thousand feet up kind of experiments. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know all that much about what to make of them in terms of how the brain is. Is computing. I mean, I can I can interpret those in terms of like change or yeah, or You're talking about like the fMRI studies in humans and stuff like that. Yeah, I don't know that those constrain too much about how we should think about mm-hmm. neuromodulatory function and and how serotonergic drugs interfere with that. Or mm-hmm. I mean, is but, anyone is anyone doing like the equivalent experiments in animals where we can uh, zoom in a bit more and see in more detail how how the brain is responding? Is anyone doing imaging or recording? Uh, so, so various labs, I think, have started since the, you know, I guess the Senate psychedelic renaissance. So there are more studies coming out. Our lab is is involved in in those studies with psychedelics per se that's something that we're just starting um they're let's see how to how to give a a short answer to what we would know in my head i would say we just start to scratch the surface of what of what's happening so i talk about what's going on in, in our lab we're looking at things like is the brain actually more activated or or less activated mm-hmm. when serotonin is released mm-hmm. like it's at that it's sort of like that level which yeah. is at sort of the fmri level there was a recent uh fmri rodent study for example i'll give you an example from uh, kenji doya's lab uh who i mentioned earlier has has been working on serotonin for some time and they showed that the response during anesthesia when a rat was was anesthetized, was inhibitory, but then when it was awake, it was no longer inhibitory. Um, so it's at a it's at a super crude 
kind of level asking things like this. Yeah, yeah. We're asking questions like, if we look more statistically at single neurons or populations of single neurons using technologies that allow us to record hundreds of neurons at the same time in several brain areas, um, statistically speaking, what's going on with the statistics of activity that we think encodes information and this is all being done mostly without the animal actually doing a task so it's uh it's kind of spontaneous activity Mm -hmm. so it's it's very early early days you know there are other studies out there that i you know if i was if i had them all on the top of my head i i don't mean to say that there's nothing going on there are studies uh coming out more frequently than ever now, but I still think think it's a kind of a period in which yeah we don't really have yet any super clear uh, take home messages uh, from the from those experiments. You know the the ideas that out there, which I could give you based on the kind of theories that we were discussing and all the architecture of the brain, um, the kind of things that people are going to be trying to look at, and so I'll give you an example. If we talk about these idea, this idea that the brain is modeling the environment, it has expectations, and that serotonin is involved in updating those models or beliefs, then w- could we isolate? Uh, could we isolate activity representing models, and could we see if the ac- effect on expectations as they were encoded is different than the effect of, say, this? purely sensory information. And we did one experiment like that with uh, stimulating serotonin neurons. This was done by um, Aran Lotum and Magor Lawrence, who were postdocs in my lab, and they did this in the olfactory system. And they were uh, able to isolate activity that's spontaneous, you know, firing of neurons in the absence of sensory stimulation, and, and activity that was driven by uh, odors in the olfactory cortex. So the odor-evoked information is more feed-forward, more purely sensory. The spontaneous activity is a bit harder to assign an origin, but is not primarily sensory-driven. And what they found in anesthetized uh, rats uh, was that stimulating serotonin neurons affected the spontaneous activity, but not the sensory evoked activity. Mm. So it differentiated between what might be associated with the model from what might be associated with the sensory input, as if it reduced the amount of expectations that the that the mice had, or it or it suppressed their expectations. So that's cool. I like this. Yeah. I, I like the study, but relatively small number of neurons, uh, anesthetized animals. We're trying to do similar experiments in behaving animals, uh, in awake, in awake, wake mice. Um, yeah, it'll be. Uh, I mean, it'll be interesting to to see. You know, as as people study some of this stuff, that um, you know. So when I think about like what you just said in the context of uh, you know feed forward versus feedback and expectations rather than sensory information, you know, when you when you think about the psychedelics and the fact that they're principally acting through this serotonin two A receptor. And that that receptor is really strongly expressed on certain neurons in the cortex that we generally like to think are these sort of top-down feedback type neurons. It'll be really interesting to see what happens when people start to do you know imaging and recording um, in response to those drugs and look at things like spontaneous versus evoked activity. 
Yeah, I, I agree. That's going to be super interesting. I, I think the trick is a lot of the experiments, we can do it, you know, we can do, say something about layer five neurons with, cert- with you know, 2A receptors, but usually not at the same time as, say, the animal is behaving and doing its natural thing, et cetera. So it requires putting together a bunch of things, but the, but the experiments are, 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 uh, you know, are doable. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of different potential pieces to try to, to try to fit together. What, what's interesting, um, you know, I think it's interesting to, to, to think about, um, well, to think, to think about, um, how, those kind of results uh, would inform human experiments or would, you know, inform our understanding of uh, psychedelics as a therapy or really psychedelics as a tool for a better understanding the mind, consciousness, cognition. And it is quite interesting to start sort of trying to bounce back and forth between those things because depression, it, 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 antidepressants also the case, but particularly for psychedelics, the essence of the problem or the essence of the interest in these things in, in a way is that they provide a, a, a kind of window onto the experience of, uh, of the world or the one's own experience. Um, not just that there's stuff going on in the brain, right? The thing mm-hmm. that's fascinating about them for so long is their ability to change perception, to change uh, very, very fundamental uh, things about what people are experiencing. So it's an opportunity to say, uh, we have this manipulation, which we know has these fascinating effects on subjective experience. And that's a lot of the reason why people are interested in psychedelics and why actually people got interested in serotonin to begin with uh, ha- has a lot to do with the fact that they are understood quite a long time ago that they were acting on serotonin system. Uh, but but then to, to bounce that back and forth with ideas about computation or ideas from data from physiology, trying to make sense of this back and forth, which I would say is the other kind of holy grail of neuroscience. We talked about the, the holy grail being defining functions as being objective, trying to understand how neurons compute certain functions. That's kind of the problem of intelligence or like the problem problem of problem solving. How does the brain compute? But I think the other fundamental holy grail of, of neuroscience is trying to make sense of our own experience, uh, trying mm. to make sense of why why we are the way we are, why we have these types of experiences. And in in that mode, a drug that has an effect on subjective experience and can be given to, to a human willing subject, given all the appropriate um, consent and, and, and protocols, is a kind of unique a unique opportunity in that respect. Mm-hmm. I mean, not unique, but the, the cases in which we can put recording electrodes in in human heads, the cases in which we can do optogenetics in people's heads, the cases in which we can do electrical stimulation and all those things that could be fascinating to know is, is going to be very, very, you know, it, it'll be a while or it will be very difficult. Drugs is something been around for a long time and have that, that side taken care of, right? Like, 
great, uh, great, relatively usable way to explore subjective experience from the inside. Uh, you can ask people what what they experience. You can take them yourself, um, and then that can be compared to the biology, the neuroscience, the models, etc. There are not um, there are not too many other perturbations like that that are that are kind of accessible mm -hmm. and and psychedelics have have always been thought of as something with a very complicated fascinating uh sometimes impossible to uh, ineffable impossible to describe uh effects of the highest possible order so it's incredibly uh fascinating from this pole of 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 self-understanding mm -hmm. yeah one of the um and one of the interesting things to think about, too, in the context of a lot of the clinical results that you've seen with, you know, psilocybin and other things the past few years is like, you know, these things affect perception and conscious experience in profound ways. That's the first thing people always talk about, um, you know, how how profound and life-changing the experience was, how how distorted their perceptions were, how they experienced things they had never experienced before. You know, when we think about that in conjunction with the therapeutic effects they've been seeing for major depression and things like that. From your perspective as like the basic scientist, as opposed to the clinician, when you think about, you know, what we do know about what the psychedelics are doing in terms of the biology that's happening, what we know about the phenomenology of the experience, there's this question of, you know, to what extent is the content of that experience relevant for the therapeutic outcome? You know, so when, so when you talk to someone who's had their depression treated and they talk about you know, the visions they were seeing and the content of those visions and, you know, what the symbolism was for them as it relates to their, their depression and, and their life. Um, the experience for them seems to be very important. They say it's very important. Um, but there's also a perspective that maybe it's not. And all of that stuff is just sort of a, a side effect of the, the therapeutic biology that's actually happening under the hood. And, you know, there's some people who think, you know, we can probably get a lot of the therapeutic outcome we've seen by engineering drugs uh, that give you that without the subjective change in your experience. And then there's, and there's people who think that that's probably unlikely to happen. How, how do you think about that? Do you think we're likely to see the, a similar magnitude of therapeutic outcomes if we engineer uh, so-called non-psychedelic psychedelics? Yeah, super interesting topic. Um, and I have like 16 different answers, <laughs> but none of which is from the perspective of a clinician because I'm not, right? But um, so my, I think my number one answer is there's something about it that doesn't completely make sense to me from a basic perspective, which is the following. So if someone is being treated by a drug and they're getting better, then this is a form of experience-dependent brain plasticity by definition. What I mean by that is that any change that happened, we can attribute it to the brain because we're not going to be mystical. And every type of plasticity that could possibly... Uh, well, let's be too, let me be a bit strong here, but all the types of plasticity that have that have been studied that are important seem to be activity dependent. Mm -hmm. And activity is basically a function of experience. Mm -hmm. you know, experience means what? Well, when we talk about subjective experience in psychedelic trips, you mentioned like what kind of visions the person saw. 
But from a more basic perspective, experience just means everything that happened. And so it's hard to imagine a drug that would have a experience independent effect that would be anything other than uh, kind of random. A random change in the synaptic weights in all yeah. the parts of the brain. So we're back to the e- so I guess we're back to the ECT conundrum, right? So if if psychedelics are nothing more than ECT ECT. Uh, sorry, electroconvulsive therapy. Got it. Then then yeah, why not then then you I mean if EC, if you believe that ECT can work, I can also I think it's not implausible that psychedelics could do something comparable to ECT to con- yeah. electroconvulse. So I so I agree. Yeah. Like on this on yeah. this poll but it sounds like what but, you're saying is but, that but I'm but I'm saying is if we that what we like I guess I'm I'm painting a mix here of the of the of, of two perspectives. So one perspective is yes it's plausible that you could have some kind of brain change that on this idea that things couldn't get any worse so they can probably get get better by you know kind Shaking of random, randomizing things. On the other side um, everything that's actually happening in a in a therapeutic process is depending on some facet of the context, the preparation of the patient, the experience that they go through, the after uh, follow ups, and all of that is is uh, going to inform the plasticity that that happens in the course of that. So, I, you can certainly imagine this kind of clinic in which ingo patients. And you know, no one speaks to them, and the brain is shaken up by whatever it is you want. And I do believe something could come of that. But is that something we want to be serving up to people? I would say, yeah, that's comparable to saying everyone who's really depressed should get ECT, ECT. as soon as possible. Yeah, yeah, it, it can be. It probably but will help on average. It, I'm not sure it will help on average, but it will sometimes help. And for some people, it will be worth it. And I. I, I don't know if I respect so much the the urgency to do that for a lot of people, but I think it's a really low bar. That's a low bar for yeah. therapy. So on the other side, I think conceiving, like trying to go down that route, is kind of throwing the potential, you know, sort of potentially throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So like rather than saying uh, we cannot afford to treat people humanely. It's too expensive or difficult to figure out the protocols or whatever. We need a drug that that doesn't have experience involved, which is how I see that that route. We can also say that we should be optimizing experiences together with drugs, and that would include, you know, the selection of who who would who would want to receive them, their preparation, the experience itself, and the, and the aftercare. I, I, think, I think the argument would be we can't afford to, to do that and that, that you know, we're, we're stuck with something much less. I don't know. I find that uh, rather bleak. I, yeah. I, I, so, so I think what we know about the brain says we sh- what we should be going for is understanding how psychedelics modify therapeutic processes. We shouldn't be taking an either biological or psychological uh, absolutism. Mm-hmm. We should be recognizing that you know, a person has particular circumstances and is going to go through a particular experience and do our best to guide that. 
and to um you know to make the placebo effect that may actually be a lot of the therapeutic effect a part of the treatment you know so so for example there are not yet randomized controlled trials to find out how to optimize the therapeutic process relative to the drug you know so there are dozens of companies finding new compounds trying to engineer the compounds every which way because that's what the pharmaceutical um, industry knows how to do and so it you know kind of makes sense and there's a business model and there's a there's a kind of uh, structure in place but pharmaceutical companies are not in the business of optimizing uh, clinical care so instead of a kind of unified uh, kind of approach we're getting kind of either or either or thinking or we're just saying you know, for example in the compass therapeutics mm -hmm. uh, psilocybin trials they're kind of trying to minimize the amount of care required they're right, not sort of right. taking it out completely right in the hopkins uh, trials there's much more uh, elaborate uh, psychotherapy and and a process involved and the the impact of the compass trials or the the effect in the compass trials were the effect sizes were much smaller than people yeah. might have expected and one might expect that that could have had to do with yeah. the minimization of of the you know kind of placebo component but if, but i think we have to think in this plasticity mode yeah. that the placebo is something we need to work with we need to yeah. you know understand how how to make that Work, yeah, work I, for the process. Yeah. I mean, I think you and I are thinking about this in a similar way because, I, I, you know, I think there probably is inevitably going to be some therapeutic efficacy for some people. If you uh, think of this as just sort of the the shaking the snow globe thing, um, so like if you're not directing someone's experience by having them uh, go through the therapy sessions and think about you know their depression or their alcoholism or or whatever it is. Um, you know, if you're in a really bad place, if you're super depressed and your brain is just in a state uh, that's that's giving you that, then maybe taking some kind of random walk out of it has good odds of being better than nothing. And maybe that's also why, right, you see effects in animals where, you know, we're not giving the rats psychotherapy, but we are seeing like antidepressant effects um, or, or the, the rat equivalent of that. But, you know, the way that I interpret the result that when people go through therapy sessions where they're specifically talking about their ailments, they're then having experiences which they report as being significant and directly involving them thinking about all of the elements of their depression or their alcoholism, alcoholism or whatever. I think that experience is the experience dependent plasticity component. You are directing it's it, if you're thinking about the actual problem in your life, that experience that you're having while you're tripping to me, I interpret that to mean you are involving the networks and the synapses that are encoding maybe the associations you want to break. And because you're doing that in the presence of the drug, you're going to have a larger effect than if you maybe or maybe not activate those networks because you're not being directed to. I think that's right. Yeah. So I think um, it'll be interesting to, to see how, how that stuff plays out. But my prediction, it sounds like this is your prediction, is that you'll probably see an effect in both cases. One where you sort of have an undirected administration of the drug with no sort of Ther ther psychotherapy component you'll see it in the other case but i think the magnitude of the effect will be different more people will be helped more if their experience involves thinking about uh yep. the associations that are relevant 
Yeah, I I think we're going to see that soon because for ketamine, although it's not a classic psychedelic, you we ended up in that situation where there's a lot of of clinics practicing ketamine without any particular mm. psycho assistance, but yep. there are others which are doing it. And what would be nice to see is trials. Uh, probably ketamine is going to be easier because it's it's less it's already out there. Yeah. And it's clear that ketamine has some efficacy even in a kind of non-therapeutic, uh, how do we put it, in a bare-bones context. Bare-bones context, But yeah. maybe do we know whether the, um, you know, it's said that ketamine treatments are not lasting very long, right? Yeah, they, There's the need for, to... is that, does that improve if one changes the therapeutic context? Yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty simple so, answerable question too right and what but i would like to see in the field more emphasis on understanding the interaction of the drug with the with the experience of the patient whether it's in a clinical context or not understanding um so understanding somebody that is with the eye shades listening to music in a in a journey isn't the optimal experimental context for a scientist to understand what's going on like it may be a the optimal therapeutic context or not i'm not sure but the problem with that context for a you know from a basic kind of curiosity question is it's really hard to know moment by moment what the person was going through yeah if you don't disturb them and if you don't collect any kind of signatures of their behavior any you know anything much? Uh, you don't really have any resolution to to say much if you don't have a right a context. So, what we have so far is a very limited number of studies, mainly or almost exclusively in healthy subjects, where they do some kind of cognitive task like the reversal learning tasks we talked about, which, by the way, are a bit all over the place in terms of results, mm-hmm. not super consistent. Uh, or you have patients who f- rightfully, you know, are kind of fully, they're the full, uh, the main purpose of the, of the psychedelic is the care for the patient. So they don't tend to bother the patients with, you know, wake up, please. Could you start, could you do this game? Yeah. Yeah. But I see in the middle, you know, psychedelics are not, not something which, uh, is, at least anecdotally psychedelics is something that a lot of people who are not severely ill uh, think helps them. And so one would expect in the future, if things progress that under some circumstances, people who are relatively healthy are also going in to have psychedelic experiences as they are anyway uh, in the current state in which those experiences are, are illegal. But, you know, people are using millions of doses of psychedelics every year in an in a kind of out of science context yeah. and what what they're doing there is optimized you know maybe haphazardly but is optimized for their enjoyment right people take these drugs because they get something yeah, out of it positive psychology the, the taking of something to feel better even though you're not feeling bad rather than to get rid of some problem exactly and the context that they're taking those yes some people sit with eye eye shades and music but a lot of people take them in social contexts, which is historically, uh, apparently, you know, a typical use for psychedelic is a kind of ritual involving a number of people. So a lot of the uses of these things are culturally 
contextualized in different ways. So what we're doing in the clinic in in the case, like in the Hopkins studies or in, in many studies is not necessarily a typical use. Yeah. You could almost hi- say it's like a, like a non-ecological use. Exactly. Yeah. It's a currently not completely ecological use. So for example, what do we know scientifically about the social, the, the interaction of psychedelics and social interaction? We would not have very many papers to count if we were going into mm-hmm. the literature to, to, to go with science. We know anecdotally that, that, that there's, there's a lot of things going on. Uh, I think social contexts are partic- particularly interesting, but what about, I don't know, athletic contexts? We know psychedelics are used for dancing. Why? Uh, why do people associate dance? Even before, you know, we talk about modern dance culture, rave culture as a, as a thing. But if you go back to, uh, one Hunter of the gatherers, they just, you know, they would do drumming ceremonies. Z- exactly. Like the earliest, you know, mescaline made it into, the first scientific literature, at, you know, from a context where it was being used in, you know, with drumming, you know, it's not something we invented with uh, techno music. It's, it's something that goes way back. Why is that? Is mm-hmm. that maybe it's, maybe it's happenstance, but I think what's interesting is we're with the medical model. We've come to, you know, we've come into it to prioritize for, for some good reasons, uh, at least initially, uh, helping people with most severe illness go from bad to good. And we're not really caring about the experience itself, which even if the, the, the outcome was not necessarily always good, we might still find drugs like this worth taking, right? Mm-hmm. So many of the drugs that, that people prefer to take, we could take alcohol, caffeine, uh, especially alcohol. You know, we don't do it because it helps us to be less depressed. Or, uh, afterwards, we do it because we find the state pleasurable, right? Right. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of things we don't know about psychedelics. They're being used in a lot of contexts. They make people they that people find find useful that don't have to do with uh, a just introspectively uh, uh, trying to solve one's problems. They're not just sort of a torture that you have to go through like ECT mm-hmm. in order to get better afterwards. When used appropriately, they're presumably something that can help people to have uh, not only better outcomes, but sort of better uh, better experiences or, or, or to explore uh, their own minds. So we shouldn't kind of forget all of that as if it's all just uh, instrumentally useful to to the antidepressant cause. Yeah, and it's it's sort of been fascinating to watch too. Um, I, I've I've sort of literally been watching in the literature uh, how people are talking about this as they get the results translated into science speak for journals, and then you know have I've watched that in the literature of all over the last two years, and now what you're starting to see is like you know the New New England Journal of Medicine will have a paper or whatever, and it'll be like. You know, we gave patients uh, psilocybin or whatever, and in addition to the psychedelic side effects, these were the therapeutic outcomes we had. Like, there's just sort of the segregation in people's minds that um, just sort of completely puts the the subjective side over here as not even potentially being relevant to the therapeutic side. And I find that very. Um, I guess I don't find it bizarre. I don't find it too surprising actually that that many people are doing that. Um, but I do think. Um, 
I, I do think if, if people aren't mindful uh, that they're making that separation automatically, that, that they're going to miss stuff and and um, we might not get as big outcomes as we hope. Completely, completely agree. The the this the kind of <clears throat> disciplinary thinking or reductionist thinking where it has to be, I don't know, it has to be one thing, or it, if it's being approached by by a company, it has to be sort of fit into that f- format. It, mm-hmm. It's not necessarily that the company or the people involved in the company want it to be that way, but it is. It is the world is kind of uh, has its tracks and, you know, doing drug development has an outcome based track. It has randomized controlled trials. It has pretty well-defined way of doing business for better, for worse. It's a kind of a straitjacket in a way from an understanding perspective, or maybe, maybe from a health perspective, it is ultimately, mm-hmm. you know, both necessary and, uh, and slowing us down. And, you know, something happened over the course of especially the 20th century, where if you go back to the time of uh, Freud, more or less, uh, early 1900s, you did not have this level of kind of mind-brain separation. You know, even Freud, before he went full-scale psychodynamic studied neuroscience, wrote about, you know, brain mechanisms. You know, William James was equally comfortable talking about neurons and consciousness mm-hmm. and, and treating uh, varieties of religious experience and, you know, much less, uh, m- much less fractured in, in many ways. So I think what, what we need to keep in mind is that we're going to have to fight the the forces of of um you know doing things really well from a fairly narrow perspective and getting stuck in thinking that that perspective is the only is somehow everything else has to come down to that mm-hmm. so what neuroscientists tend to do whether they you know whether they like it or not is they I'm a neuro what being a neuroscientist means is you're going to put neurons ahead of everything else and you know, okay, that's that's what I know best. That's my job. I spent the last two hours talking with you mostly about computers and neuromodulators, but I should keep reminding myself, my students and the, and whatever the public, that that's not because I think everything reduces to neurons. It will all be solved like that. It's like me, you know, trying to go into a conversation with an economist and trying to convince the economist that we should all forget about. Uh, macroeconomics and start talking about neurons, he will laugh me out of his office if he if he even lets me in his office. And it's not going to change. Uh, the economists are, are going to be there for, for a while, right? So we have to be interdisciplinary in a, in a kind of tough way. Like we, we, we got to accept that the thing that may get us money or get our promotions or get our papers in which is going to be disciplinary and tracked is not always going to be the end all be is never going to be the end all be all uh, of what we need if we're trying to help people where all these complexities are still going to be present all the you know the neurons are there yes but so are the so are the social conditions so are the you know the political conditions so are the psychological conditions we we cannot be keep approaching this as if one of those is going to suddenly undermine and, and get rid of the need 
to take into account all the other ones. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's our challenge. One thing, um, sort of a vague question I want to get your take on is tying a couple of threads together that we've been discussing. You know, if it's true that, um, that serotonin is somehow involved in this, this idea of context switching or allowing the brain to switch. You know, one thing that it strikes, strikes me that's important there to, to say is, um, being able to shift your strategies or, you know, reassociate things in a context dependent manner. That's super important to do if you actually need to change your strategy, if the context shifts. But the flip side of that is also, it's super important not to do that if that's not called for. And I'm wondering what your take is on the acute versus chronic use of of serotonergic drugs, whether it's psychedelics, whether it's SSRIs, if that is the case, you know, if, if the point of getting someone out of depression is to get them to form some new associations or make some new context assignments, um, that's strikes me as something good to do until you make, you sort of remap your, your associations and your contexts. But then if you're, you know, sort of staying on the drug chronically for a very long time, is it possible then it would actually be maladaptive because because you, you actually want to stay in the stable strategy once you come upon it. Yes, I think that's right. So if you have, let's say, built up a, a, a set of strategies or a set of contexts that you, know, you compartmentalize your life in a certain way that's gotten, gotten out of control or, or gone wrong, then you want to you wanna shift, shift those those things so more flexibility will help you if you continue you may have a hard time uh keeping the starlight in perspective let's say in this sort of metaphor you know you have the compartments they should be stuck to some degree those are kind of the guidance for your long-term you know your longest term thinking how am i how am i how am I doing on the twenty-year time scale, uh, which you know young adults don't even have, right? So it's a super, super long-term perspective. If you're constantly meddling with your metaphysical beliefs um, f- for two decades, how could you possibly have a kind of steady guidance? Or mm-hmm. if you do, it's for- you're forcing things to kind of become more and more meta. But but you know, there's there's always going to be some attempt to keep to keep making sense of the world. But if, yeah, if you're taking a drug that allows you to compartmental, recompartmentalize, or let's say rethink everything. Um, yeah. What, what, how, how can you continue to, to be in that state? Uh, how long would you like to be in that state? It's a, it, it's, that would be the implication of, of this way of this way of thinking about it. Um, that's not an easy study to do mm-hmm. right like three weeks is is a lot to ask for a study on depression with uh long-term psychedelic use in a in a anecdotally there are no grave dangers right but you know how do we compare people's lives at such an abstract level it's probably, it's not going to be very soon that that one is going to have answers to that um but what's I think what's interesting is we 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 should be trying to contextualize treatments 
and studies to try to look at those things. And they're not even that, you know, they're not easy to, to get data at. So, so sort of honing our tools for understanding lived experience on a, you know, rich time scale, a short time scale and a long time scale. How do people do this, this kind of thinking? We get at that by conversations. We get at that with novels. We get at that with, you know, this kind of informal tools that we have as people in cultures. You know, we do podcasts and, and whatever, but we don't have a science of life, you know, in that, in that way, which is a lot to ask. Mm -hmm. So it's not, it's not that clear that it's going to be very soon, but that we have studies where one is going to be able to say, answer that question, which you, you know, the point you're making, which I think is super, super valid. It's going to be more raising awareness that maybe these are things that we should be thinking about. And, you know, if you are taking psychedelics, think about that kind of issue. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if you know somebody who's going to go for therapy, um, there's going to be you know, quick fix mentalities going on. And if there are long-term effects, it's maybe not horrific flashbacks, but there's going to be some effect, right? There's going to yeah. be some directionality at some level to how it changes you as a person. Yeah. You can't be going through, it was the most intense experience of my life yet again and not have <laughs> some kind of long-term, yeah. right? Yeah. And then that's a choice. Like then yeah. with the awareness of that, or the better, the more awareness people have, the better they can make those decisions for themselves. Because in this, you know, what the the point that's important here is, we we will not be able to outsource and mechanize all of our mental health care decisions to RCTs to clinical trials. Right? We will get rid of the worst. Yeah, there's never going to be a, a clinical trial that speaks to every ex everything we need to answer today. Exactly. Everything that is about you, you know, you need to at some level take responsibility for your own brain, your own mind. Uh, you cannot ever expect your therapist or psychiatrist to be able to know you better than than yourself. And so, you know, this podcast is a kind of mechanism for people to better inform themselves about these issues where we don't have answers, right? I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not giving any answers about any particular person, but like by raising these kinds of discussions, I think uh, people can start to, to, to ask this of themselves, you know, about their own lives. So it's sort of the, you know, introspection is a, is a full-time job, right? For a, for many neuro, for a neuroscientist trying to understand the brain, you know, it's something that fa fascinates us and, and, you know, thinking about why you're depressed uh, as a neuroscientist, if you're depressed and you have very rich, complicated ways to think about things, it can be helpful. If you reduce it to this drug is good, this drug is bad, this, you know, this therapist will, will sort me out. It doesn't give you very many tools to work on yourself, right? So I, I really appreciate the need for uh, people to take to, to inform themselves and you know whether you're a scientist or not that these topics are not so complicated that you cannot uh, you cannot start to have your own opinions about uh, about about your own mental health right far from it yeah um, well we've been talking for a while now is there anything that you want to leave people with any final thoughts or, or anything you want to uh, reiterate from our discussion I think that's a great place to end excellent well Professor Zach Mainen, uh, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
This episode is supported in part by The Amino Company. They specialize in making science-backed amino acid products that you can mix into any drink. Their products contain a mixture of essential amino acids, the building blocks of proteins in the body, as well as other nutrients including minerals like iron and electrolytes like potassium. Your body is constantly repairing damage and your muscles and tissues need the right mix of amino acids and nutrients to do this effectively. One thing I like about AminoCo is they actually conduct clinical trials to determine what their products really do. They have a variety of formulations engineered for different purposes, and my personal favorite is one called Heal, which has been shown to be three times more efficient at triggering muscle growth and repair than other protein sources. It helps maintain healthy inflammation levels and preserve muscle mass during periods of inactivity. I mix this product into the water bottle I bring to the gym and consume it before, during, and after my workouts, and I have felt a noticeable difference in my performance during those workouts and my recovery times from soreness and fatigue afterwards. Their products are keto-friendly, soy-free, vegetarian or vegan, gluten-free, and non-GMO, so they are compatible with almost any diet or lifestyle. You can support the podcast and try Heal or any of their other products by using the discount code MIND when you visit aminoco.com mind. You will get 30% off your purchase. If you work out regularly or do intensive exercise, I recommend trying AminoCo's products. I get a lot of companies reaching out to me about advertising, and I only end up using and liking a small percentage of the products that I see. So check out aminoco.com mind and use the code MIND to try these products today for 30% off.